Hello listeners and welcome to this special Unions 21 bite-sized masterclass podcast. This podcast is supported by the University of Sheffield's Political Economy Research Institute, better known as Sperry, and Open Democracy's Beyond Trafficking and Slavery Project. I'm Simon Sapper. I'm Becky Wright. And I'm Tom Hope from Sperry. In this episode, Mike Clancy, General Secretary of the Prospect Union, talks about a renaissance for private sector bargaining. Becky, Tom, what do you think of the main issues that he would need to cover? I think what he is keen to focus on is, or what he should focus on, is the importance of the renaissance of collective bargaining in the private sector. We know that both collective bargaining coverage and membership in the private sector is far lower than the public sector and for me this seems to be yeah. crucial. And I think the, the key thing to remember is when nearly or just over 85% of people uh, in the labour market work in the private sector and only 13% of people in the private sector are union members and we have collective bargaining at some ridiculously low uh, level like 15%. This really is where the efforts and the focus of the trade union movement needs to be right now. And, and also, of course, most of those businesses are really small, nine employees or, or less. How can the trade union movement speak to people in those circumstances? And it's from these sort of discussions that our Commission for Collective Voice in the 21st Century has kind of come around as well. So, a lot to play for. Indeed. Mike Clancy, General Secretary Prospect. Mike is also taking responsibility within Unions 21 for a new project on private sector renewal focusing on collective bargaining and voice in the workplace. Mike, over to you. Good morning, colleagues. Thank you for the opportunity to speak. When a friend is telling you uh, some home truths, it's usually a good idea to listen. First of all, that point uh, about I don't have a problem at work being a guiding factor to whether people join or not, what's that telling us? It's telling us that we're associated with solving problems. It's potentially also telling us we're associated with uh, things that are negative rather than aspirational. And if we're only associated with things that happen episodically to people, don't be surprised if they're not reaching for us regularly on the things that affect them daily, which is about going forward in their lives, hopefully having positive experiences at life, developing their careers in different forms of workspace, And if we're not touching that, don't be surprised if our bonds or potential relationship with people are are strained. The the second thing is the fact that it's data. Now, as a trade unionist, one thing I think defines us is that actually having knowledge of a subject is no bar to have an opinion about it. (laughs) And for some of us, it's got us to where we are. (laughs) Some of us more than others. But what I think we don't do enough in the trade union movement is confront our challenge that we believe we are the purveyors of an eternal truth, that if only people would wake up and listen to enough, everything would be okay. Because where we should be is absolutely ensconced in the data and in the evidence. Now, I think we've got actually, though, eternal solutions we're just really bad at getting them over to people in a contemporary way. Because one of the things which I think in terms of our challenge is we need to go from geek to normal. And what I mean by that is, I think we spend a lot of time in environments where 
We talk a language that we're all familiar with. We assume shared and um, perennial values, which may be actually quite different from group to group. And we don't spend enough time actually thinking about why do people not behave exactly as we expect them to do? And how do we adapt ourselves as trade unions to that environment? So I think we've got to be grounded in this data. And I really think that the, the TUC, leading unions, but unions generally, need to be confronting this on a regular basis. So I don't think anything's scary in this, because actually we do have the capacity to still together through collective action shape people's lives. But I'm going to start with actually the individual. We've done some polling of late and some qualitative research which fits a lot of these themes, where there's a, a strong sense that unions are bewildering. They're not necessarily uh, organisations that give any sense of animosity from people, but what do they do? How do they influence things? And what you have to confront is this sense of individualism. Now, we shouldn't overplay that. People have not lost the bonds of collective action together. They just maybe express them in a different way. They express them for shorter periods of time. Notions of joining and membership are much more difficult to different parts of uh, civic society these days. But what we've got to look at is what's the individual compelling reason to get people to join or pay a fee to then move to participation and then move to influence. Because you build a collective <coughs> from individuals. Now, I see, when I look out on our economy, great opportunity, great potential for trade unions. But let's just look at a couple of our challenges. 15, 20 years ago, I used to look at the United States of America levels of collective bargaining and union coverage and think, wow, how do they survive in those environments? Well, we know that their collective agreements are legally enforceable. We know that they have high union dues. We're getting to that level of challenging the economy in terms of collective agreement coverage, and trade union membership. I'm focusing on private sector renewal because it's vital to the public sector as well. If we don't renew trade unionism in the private sector in different ways, fitting the contemporary workspace, the public sector will continue to look like an area where there is activities and patterns and behaviours that the rest of the economy don't experience. Take pensions. Public sector pensions are not glamorous, but they look glamorous when you compare them to private sector provision and the paucity of it. And you can build that through several different forms of employment interaction that the public <coughs> sector mustn't look like a place of gold plating and different treatment when actually it's nothing like that. But if your private sector experience is one of atomization, it's one of low influence, and it's one of you get what you're given, because remember, with collective agreement coverage in the private sector down at 13, 14, 15%, 85% of the private sector don't get a say. They don't get a say. Now, we as trade unionists wonder why people don't rise up, take the reins in the private sector and take control. Well, of course, they try to, and sometimes with our support, but they're facing huge obstacles. I think one of the things that came over from our research just recently, because it's directly related to people's attitude to collective bargaining, even if they understand the term, is a real sense of, well, we've got used to taking what we're given. 
So if we can, and we don't, if we can move to another job in the private sector because we don't like what is actually happening to us, we'll do it. If not, we pretty much have to put up with it. Now, this is where trade unions come in. Because the potentialities, what we can give to people through a renewed sense of influence collectively is enormous. But to do that, we're going to have to really confront what our thinking is about collective bargaining, what the content of that agenda is, talking to employers, how we shape a new conversation where people actually feel empowered through us, not talked at, but talked with, to create that sense of influence that actually, if I'm going to be around here a little while, I want to say in how my employment is formed and shaped. Now, when I talk to employer audiences, I often get the, the challenge to them, would you be happy when the last trade union office in this country closes its door and the lights turned out? Zero trade unionism in the UK economy. Is that the long-run success and objective of British capitalism? Is that what you want? And then, of course, they think about their own social circumstance. They may think about their kids if they have them. They think about their community and they think about civic life. And as much as sometimes they think trade unions are a bit of a pain in the arse, the last thing they want to see is the last light turn out. So then you engage them in the debate about, well, what about in your space? And so, oh, of course, we don't need a union. Someone else might need a union, but we don't. Now, we've got to get a public policy discussion going here because it's not as if the last three decades have left us with an economy that's in good shape. Look at the productivity challenge. Look at the skills challenge. Look at wage stagnation. Look at gender pay gaps. Look at the absence of voice. So it's not like trade unions are actually confronting an economic model that has been successful in redistribution, successful in weathering economic shocks, and successful in creating a productive economy. We've got to get that argument over again more confidently. But if we're going to reimagine collective bargaining, we will have to confront what we think about collective bargaining from the past and what it will be shaped for the future. There's going to be a variety of responses here. I have some serious concerns about an overarching focus on sectoral collective bargaining. I can see that it's certainly valuable in a number of areas where uh, the uh, terrain lends itself to creating an employer group on the other side of the table. Adult social care, that sort of thing, you can absolutely see it. Large parts of the private sector, the idea that employers are just going to blithely line up on the other side of a bargaining table anytime soon is complete fantasy. And if you're going to create collective bargaining on a sectoral level, you have to think about who your counterparty is. That's why in our recent report from ResPublica, we put some challenging stuff in there about enterprise bargaining, ensuring that collective bargaining is created at a point where you've got consent from an employer and a trade union and a work group. The other thing with central bargaining I have a concern about is actually relevance and engagement. Haven't we, don't we all experience the free rider problem? You know, in the public sector, there's probably still 60-70% coverage of collective agreements. We haven't got 67% trade union membership, though. So we've got to really think about how we're going to shape this. One of the challenges which the TUC have taken up, to be fair, I, I put at a recent meeting, is where's the trade union ask on collective bargaining on two to three sides of A4 if there is ever in the future a government willing, on the basis of a manifesto that's been carried in the election, 
to change the bargaining arrangements in this country? Where have we thought it all through? Where are we going to be able to handle the attacks that are going to come on the things that we believe are necessary for the economy? So, different forms of bargaining will have to be thought through. We also have to think through bargaining in what is now the contemporary workspaces. My union is in a fortunate position of having changed quite a lot in the last year or so. We've just done, in our Bechtus sector, an agreement in major motion pictures for every motion, all motion pictures above 30 million um, are now covered by a union agreement uh, with our Bechtus sector, governing working patterns, rates, and a whole range of other matters. Now, the interesting thing about this has been long in the gestation. But one of the driving factors was inward investment from American studios, and to borrow a phrase, them saying, we're sick of the Wild West. We need labor rates. We need a giant Excel spreadsheet, knowing what we're going to put on each, uh, on each set. And the best way of doing that, a bit of good old-fashioned collective bargaining with a union. They have their purposes, these unions, says the American inward investors. Now, that suits us as well. But what that has in it is that prescription that a lots of the parts of our economy in terms of UK capitalism have forgot. Collective bargaining brings structure, it brings order, it brings norms, and it brings balance. Very interesting as well when you look at the uh, international comparisons. A piece in The Independent just recently about collective bargaining in Belgium. 55% uh, unionisation rates, 90% uh, collective agreements, very small gender pay gap. Is that a surprise? Is that, is that actually a surprise to anybody? In this country, with our tradition, though, of more conflictual industrial relations, of a relatively laissez-faire attitude to the law for a long, long time, we've arrived at this point in our journey. And why have we arrived at this point in our journey as well in the private sector? We've forgotten about talking to employers. If you're going to have collective bargaining and influence, something you're going to, have to be damn good at in the private sector is talking to the bosses. First of all, you have to convince them why they should listen to you. You have to understand their markets. You have to understand their products. You have to understand, actually, what their fears are. And you have to confront them, and you have to not just critique them, you have to find solutions. Unions need to be grounded in collective solutions to make ourselves relevant to employers who've got problems, because those problems will affect the people that we either represent or seek to represent in the future. There's no point standing outside just shouting at employers. However, there are things we're going to really need to change through, through public policy. We have to get beyond, somehow in public policy, concepts that we've all grown up with. Trade union recognition. Why is my right to represent members who want us to collectively bargain for them dependent upon something that is conferred by an employer? subject to a legal procedure. We have to fundamentally go back to the things legally that we've lived with and ask the questions again. Collective voice in a workplace should be an inalienable right, exercisable by workers through independent means, and that independent means can be delivered through a trade union if they so choose. But it's not a right that's conferred 
by an employer in the goodness of their heart or if they're required by the law. We have too long operated within some of these shackles. So, for me, all of our problems are channelable through to the renewal of collective bargaining in the private sector. We have to find the individual reason to get people to join our organisations, participate, and that means understanding them as individuals. You build back from that to the collective processes that hopefully let them sh show them they have a potential operating together to influence their circumstances. And they don't just have to walk away or they don't just have to put up with it. They can make things different and better. And I'm convinced that a large part of our productivity challenge in this country relates to the fact that people don't believe they can influence things. People in this country are turned to when the employer has a problem in process. But if they ask for a say on security or on the big decisions, they're denied it. So don't be surprised if they then think, I don't have a stake in this organisation. So we're going to need a roadmap to this renewable. I think we've got a lot of strong points in terms of the data. Look at the happiness indexes internationally. They all tend to be countries with high levels of collective agreements. Women, in particular, should be demanding collective bargaining. But it's a route to greater diversity more generally. And we actually have to do a little bit more of education to give people the sense that there are power relationships at work that they can influence collectively and through their trade unions. So I, I close with, with, with this point. If we're going to engage in a process of private sector renewal of trade unionism, we will need to engage in a process of renewing trade unionism. I know in my own organisation, and I, we've been talking about it a lot lately, in the last 18 months, two years, we've deliberately disrupted ourselves. And it's been hard for staff, for representatives and the governance layer to go through a lot of change. But we deliberately disrupted ourselves because we could see some of the challenges ahead. At the moment, and it's fragile, we've been growing for 18 months. And it's a tribute to everybody involved in the organisation. Obviously, brilliant leadership. That goes without saying. Because no one else is going to say it. But it is a... It is a hard slog to challenge yourself in the things that you believe fundamentally in and the things you've done all along the way. But look at the data. And it's only by confronting our own renewal that we'll renew ourselves in the eyes of the people that we have the aspiration to represent and collectively bargain for. Thank you. So, Tom, Becky, what do you think were the main takeaways from, from that bite-sized masterclass from Mike? I think Mike is absolutely right to focus in on the idea that workers have got used to taking what they're given and don't have a kind of sense of how collective bargaining could help improve their conditions at work. If people like know what collective bargaining is in the first place. Yeah, this is a term that you know, perhaps we're used to talking and discussing, but it's just not out there in the kind of public debate about work. Yeah, and I think the other thing about is how do we talk about ourselves as a movement? Do we do it in the negative or do we do it in the positive? Yeah, the, 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 the business about being associated with positive things rather than negative things, and the, with the default being that it's always negative. 
that's a key issue, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And we know from visiting our colleagues uh, in Sweden that when they were looking at work to do with um, Union Renaissance, the key thing that they got from that was to be considered as improvers in the workplace, not helpers in distress. And I think on that point, Mike is right to home in on the so-called productivity puzzle and how collective bargaining is a potential, is, is part of the solution to that. If workers don't feel that they've got any influence over what's happening in their workplace, then they're not going to sort of suggest how things could be improved. This podcast is one of a series of five bite-sized masterclasses from Unions 21 supported by Sperry and Open Democracy. You can subscribe and rate the other episodes on Podbean, iTunes and the podcasting platform of your choice. You've been listening to me, Simon Sapper. Me, Becky Wright. And me, Tom Hunt. bite-sized masterclass podcast has been supported by Sperry and Beyond Trafficking and Slavery on Open Democracy. Beyond Trafficking and Slavery is a platform working to explain how and why labour exploitation takes place, as well as what unions and other activists are doing to prevent it. Take a look at www.opendemocracy.net forward slash beyond slavery. This has been a Makes You Think production.